Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're joined by a repeat guest, Dr. Alan Frankel, who uh, well, the first time we interviewed him, uh, the cannabis laws were quite different. Uh, Dr. Frankel specializes in cannabis medicine for many years. And he'll tell us precisely how long and this specific type of practice that he has. But he's here to give us an update because things have changed quite radically. Not only is cannabis, uh, even recreational use of cannabis, uh, legal now in California, but hemp is legal across the entire United States, thanks to the Farm Bill Pat passed just about at the end of 2018. So welcome and thank you for joining us today for a cannabis update, Dr. Frankel. Thanks so much. I had a good time five years ago, and I'm sure today will be even more fun. Wow, it's been five years already. Well, you know, I can say that that is just time flies when heaven's such a great team. I'll tell you, things are so, anyway, I'm Alan Frankel. I um, work out of Santa Monica at Greenbridge Medical. I've been an internist for 41 years, and 13 years ago, I, like I think I said on your show for the first time, I splashed some green on my white coat, and I got a little bit tired of the pharmaceutical issues, and um, now I'm um, pretty much thoroughly disgusted with what I see happening out there. And cannabis is becoming more and more and more a viable option to, that people can count on, that you can have reliable dosing, that each time you take it, you can have the same dosing. There's certainly a lot of um, bad products out there. Um, and depending on how much time you want to spend on bad products, it's, but we're, in, in general, we're looking for whole plant. Um, hemp. Hemp is going through a big change now, the, because with the, with the farm bill, as you talk about, the um, version two hemp is actually going to be cannabis plants that started with 0.4% um, THC, and I actually developed some of those, and now we just went to 0.3, and with the new farm bill, that's defined as hemp. It's basically whole plant cannabis. It, it is whole plant cannabis, but just hits at 0.3. So it's, it's confusing out there. Yeah, so why don't you highlight some of, well, give us a history for those who haven't seen their pre, your previous interview with me of what you've been doing these past 11 years and then how these changes with the new legislation in California and then the national legislation last year has changed what you're doing. Well, things have changed you know, a lot in the last five years. I mean, first of all, I'm no longer on probation. I, I served nine years um, on probation for all sorts of various reasons that were I, I think cannabis-based, but now things are, have changed. The medical board doesn't seem to be interested in me anymore, although they're asking me at times to help out with certain things. But the last five years has brought much more consistent dosing. It's brought the hemp, which has brought good things and bad things with it. Um, one of the most exciting things that I've been working on the last two years, and I think people who are watching and listening to this this is going to feel like CBD was two years before you ever heard about CBD. And this new molecule, a new ancient molecule, is THCV, V as in victory, tetrahydrocannabavarin. Um, the THCV molecule is very, very similar to the THC molecule, but doesn't have any psychoactivity. It's missing three atoms. Interesting. Yeah, but when it's mixed with THC, which pretty much all the THC, it's going to be like CBD, THC, now it's going to be THCV um, and THC. Um, and one of the problems is most of the small number of strains that we found of THCV have a lot of THC in them. Um, 
And one of the things that if people start using THCB that you're going to start realizing is that it has a shorter half-life uh, than THC. And when we were working with the very initial extracts a couple of years ago, we would find that people wouldn't have any real psychoactivity. Although there is euphoria, there's this focused euphoria with THCB acting on a little THC, but it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And I think for depression and anxiety, it's gonna be helpful for pain. I think for, and one of the things I'd love to talk about today is where I see this going with narcotic issues. And yeah. THCB and cannabinoids in general are gonna be a, a huge issue. So well, let's, let's uh, finish up on THCB because I, prior to this, I really haven't heard of it before. So I would assume that's still illegal uh, according to the farm bill because it's THC. It, or do they make the distinction between the two? Well, right now, the, the majority of strains of THCV are about 50-50 THCV, THC. So there's no way it would pass in the farm bill. But that's just a matter of breeding. I mean, when eight, nine years ago, when I started breeding the first CBD plants, the first CBD we found was one-to-one, -one, just like the THC. 50-50. Yeah, so, um, but we need, we need plants that are like four to one, five to one THCV. But we don't know, for example, one very basic thing, does it require THC for THCV to have its activity? Mm. But um, certainly THCV has been now shown to help treat the symptoms of Parkinson's, and these were in studies, um, as well as preventing further progression of it. I would say the most exciting thing that we found with THCV first is for treating existing neuropathy. And there are 20 million people in this country that have neuropathic pain. And as you know, it's, it means called suicide pain. It's, it's horrible, horrible pain. And there's not very many good medications for it. I mean, it's severe enough that narcotics work for it. I would say take a narcotic. But it turns out THCV works unbelievably well for neuropathic pain. Um, and there's one animal study, or maybe two animal studies now, with THCV and multiple sclerosis. And I've had two MS patients where I put on a transdermal version of the THCV. Um, I guess I should say they put it on. Um, and they had resolution of their neuropathic discomfort, weakness, and pain from their feet all the way up to their thighs. So that's definitely one thing we're going to be pursuing a lot. And um, it's for, for, for mood disorder, for seizures. Um, we have to get a little bit less you know, THC in it. But for seizures, I see where it's going to be CBD, THCA, THCV, CBDV. Um, similar to treating cancer, if we can have five or eight different major cannabinoids and maybe 100 terpenes that all kill cancer, why not mix them together? I mean, why wouldn't we want them together since they balance off each other's side effects and there's not much in the way of side effects? Well, it sounds, so, like, a, it sounds like a great molecule. How does one find a product with THCV? Are, are labs regularly um, assessing that molecule? This is it's basically like CBD was eight or nine years ago. There are a couple of people playing around with it. Um, I, don't, I wish I knew another... First of all, the, there's a paucity of strains. There's a paucity of supply of the actual bud material. And too many of the strains right now have too much THC in them. So a lot needs to be done with breeding, and it's going to take three, four, five years to have the various products that we want. 
But um, with the hemp bill, I think, and I probably shouldn't be saying this, some of my friends will be upset with sharing information, but I think I'm old enough now, I need to start sharing more. Um, that you know, we're gonna see autoflowers. Did we ever talk about what an autoflower is? No, we have not. Well, everybody's always heard, has heard of sativa and indica, um, but there's a third strain called ruderalis, which is an autoflower. And what happened a few thousand years ago is sativas that were trying to grow in the steppes of, of Russia, the summers were so short and um, with so little light that it was impossible for them to go through growth and then a flowering period. So one plant, one day, had a little genetic change and it started flowering at the same time that it's growing. So it's amazing when you see these plants because you can put them in any light um, and they grow. And you'll be hearing, everybody will be hearing more and more and more about autoflowers. Um, they mature, but by the time you, you pop a seed, in 55 days you have a finished plant. Now it's a small plant, but it's very easy to grow. And I, I see this as something for the home patient market. And we're starting to develop, although we're definitely having some resistance from the people making money doing this. But basically a kit or be a list of things to get with a video on for the non-grower, the non-extractor, who just wants good medicine for themselves, how could you do it at home uh, and actually do a pretty good job? And we've, um, I'm very excited about these new rosin machines, and that's how we do all the THCB, where you're just pressing the oil out of it. Um, oh, well, let's go back to the autoflowers. So that's available now, and what type of uh, components are in those flowers? Is, is it the same as uh, the low THC hemp, or does it have THC? Not yet. Okay. Yeah. At this moment, autoflowers are pretty much any strain that you can get regular seeds for. I mean, you could get OG Kush, you could get Blue Dream, you can get autoflowers. Um, there's an autoflower by um, CBD Crew that people can buy the seeds that are a one-to-one -one CBD THC. So that's pretty convenient. Um, and there's autoflowers now that are um, going to be classified as hemp, but they're going to be basically these um, low THC cannabis plants. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the changing and the growing um, and strains is exploding at this point. And it's, to me, it's more in the medical area. And well, good. So in an ideal world, if we, one didn't need to worry about uh, either local or federal legislation, what would be the ratio of THC to CBD? Now, obviously, what's legal all over the country is 99.5% CBD and all its analogs and essentially 99.7%, or 0.3% or less THC. So in an ideal world, what do you think that ratio would be? In an ideal world, we'd be able to have any ratio that we wanted. I mean, if, if I, there isn't a single ratio that I work with on a, Okay. Well, why, why don't you discuss the rate, the different ratios, and what conditions they would be ben they would benefit from? All right, we actually put this on a we, we kind of refer to as Dr. Frankel's Stony Scale, and it's a, a one to ten scale where one is a plant that's a twenty or thirty to one CBD to THC, and a ten is the reverse. It's like twenty or thirty to one THC to CBD. So then everything in between are the various ratios. So you have 20 to 1, 8 to 1, 4 to 1, 2 to 1, 
number five, which is the most common strain in history, is one-to-one. -one. And then on the other side of the scale, it just goes up towards very stony um, products. So we actually don't use that often. Um, Do you believe that if one was to use hemp or cannabis as a, a food, essentially, uh, to optimize your health and not really treating a symptom or a disease, that the one-to-one -one ratio might be ideal? Well, it depends on the patient, depends on what issues they have. I mean, for, for myself, I take um, a decent amount of whole plant CBD every day, preventably, um, and I use a modest amount of THC, that's more in the more, more casual. But CBD overall, as far as prevention, well, let me back up for a second. Most patients are, that have no THC experience, if you give them a one-to-one, -one, uh, they're not gonna be able to tolerate that. We're gonna have to start at a very, very tiny dose, or start with a two-to-one or a four-to-one first. Okay. People that have no experience with THC can have really bad experiences, even from a one-to-one. -one. So I generally, if I start somebody in a one-to-one -one who has, let's say, pain, where one-to-one -one would be reasonable, I'm basically telling them, for the first number of days, you're not gonna be able to drive, you're gonna be limited activities, um, because you're basically making a decision that instead of having pain, as you adjust to the THC, you're going to have a little stoniness. Now, if somebody offered me a lot of pain or a little stoniness, I, I mean, it's a simple decision I, for me. And I think I know you, you know which one I would pick. But people are still so scared of cannabis that as a physician, you have to really explain to them that this, isn't, this is a lot safer than narcotics. And when they're taking narcotics for their pain, they're certainly having psychoactive issues and they're getting addicted all the time. Um, there is not only no addiction with cannabis, I mean, the, the U.S. federal government puts THC addiction at about 4%. I mean, coffee is 25%. So I, and CBD has zero. And when you start mixing a, like a one-to-one, -one, I don't think there's any addiction there at all. And when we stop patients' cannabis, we just cold turkey it. We don't, I don't see any reason. And I've never seen any problems cold turkeying it. Okay, so uh, well, I interrupted you previously when you were starting to describe the new pressing uh, devices uh, that, that seems to have made a difference in the ability to use this product. Can you just discuss that further? Yeah, I think that, I mean, as you know, that people do extraction. You've got this plant, it has oil in the oil glands, and the goal is to get that oil out and then to be able to mix it with like MCT oil and have a dosed, test-proven um, tincture that you can make into capsules or transdermals or whatever. Um, so you run the question again, I just, just lost it. No, it was just the, the different type of extraction oh. devices that are out there. And then maybe even an extension of that would be to compare it to uh, supercritical CO2 extraction, which uses high pressure, uh, no increase in temperature to extract the oils and no solvents. Yeah. Um, but the supercritical CO2 is about 100 years old. I mean, it's used for decaffeination. It's used for a lot of other. The, with the, the prior versions or generations of the supercritical or subcritical CO2 machines, the problem is the pressure was so high that all terpenes and small more wow. molecules would get destroyed. There are newer CO2 machines that we're actually working with now that basically the oil as it's getting extracted can go into one of four holes. 
and you can we, we pick the extraction based upon getting the smallest molecules like the terpenes first and have them in a container here and just leave them there until the extraction is finished and then put the terpenes back in. Hmm. So that's one of the ways of doing it with CO2. Um, if I were the boss, um, and I know I'm not the boss, that's why this is not happening, the way I would make oil is I would use a few thousand year old techniques of hashing, which basically you're using water or ice um, and getting the, the oil glands to fractionate or fracture off of the plant and you get a big pile of oil glands. And then you take those oil glands, which are called trichomes, and you can put them in a special parchment paper and you press a button and a press comes down and squeezes pure cannabis oil out of the millions of trichomes. And that oil, at that moment, if you take it and smell it, it's like you put your nose into a plant. It has all the full richness. Um, and then that dilutes very well with MCT or olive oil or avocado oil. And then you have a dosed tincture. Um, so why isn't everybody doing it? I mean, first of all, people are using this more in the recreational world because it's very simple to get a small amount, you know, like a dab of oil, and then they vaporize it or smoke it. Um, I'm not a big fan of dabbing. I just think it's way too much. And I don't know if we have time, we can later talk about cannabis hyperemesis syndrome because that's becoming a bigger problem. Well, let, let's talk about the dabbing because I certainly am not familiar with that and I suspect many people aren't. So what's, what's dabbing? Okay, yeah, let's talk about it because this is, this is not something I'm encouraging. This is something I'm actively discouraging. Dabbing is when you, instead of smoking the actual flower, which has maybe 15 to 20% THC in it, they're now smoking an oil that's 80 to 85% THC. And they put the dab oil on top of a very, 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 very hot um, piece of metal, like a spatula, and you inhale the, the vapor, and you get, I mean, it's, for the first time you do it, even for somebody who's comfortable with THC, it's overwhelming. And then people, but you can get through it and you can become a regular dab user. And we're starting to see medical complications of it. It's just too much. And once you've gone to an 80 or 90% THC oil, where do you go from there? This is like you're injecting heroin and people are using, um, not fire throwers, but, you know, big heating elements. It looks like you're doing, you know, something very illegal. And there's nothing illegal about it. I just think it's foolish. It, it, it's a... Uh, Zero sum game. There's no good end to it, um, and I, I would not. I would discourage anybody from smoking oil. And I've seen a number of teenagers. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, but oh, I, I haven't. No. Yeah, so I imagine it would be related to overdosing on it. Yeah, it's related to overmedicating, um, but it's not just an issue of THC because. There's some recent data that was started in emergency rooms, because emergency rooms are seeing a lot of young males, mostly young males, with hyperemesis. And they have gone through months of evaluations with internists and GI docs and getting upper GIs and scoping. They can have diarrhea, abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting. And the only two things that help them are either inhaling more THC or taking more THC or taking a hot shower or a hot bath. 
Now, the hot shower, hot bath has always been, especially when I, I had a party one evening and I went in, I was just living in a one bedroom apartment and I went in just to use my restroom and there was a guy in my bathtub naked um, smoking weed and I asked, what are you doing in my bathtub? And he said, he always, the only thing he can stop his nausea and vomiting with was with smoking or with a hot tub. Um, that was a weird experience, but the, the most recent data on this is that capsaicin, if you apply capsaicin, and they've done this in a number of emergency room patients, rubbing capsaicin 0.1% on the lower abdomen, for most of the patients, it stops um, the, the pain and the nausea and vomiting. The question is, why? And you know, capsaicin um, triggers certain um, neurotransmitters that are on our pain fibers. And this is where um, cannabinoids also work. So it, it, it might be part of that the overall heat sensation with the bath and the showers and the capsaicin heat you know, triggering the, the trip vanilla, vanilloid um, receptors. So that's what the current thinking is. But this is a disease that um, this could become a big problem for kids. And the only way to prevent it is just not to do dabs. It's, um, okay. So what, what do you recommend as the ideal way to take this? Is it, to, is it a, a predetermined, safe oral dose, swallowing it? Because obviously there's no pulmonary complications from smoking. Um, I don't think there's really any pulmonary complication from using cannabis. I just, for my practice, I mean, am I opposed to people um, vaping or smoking small amounts of cannabis? No, I really don't. I don't think it's a big well, issue. Well, potentially it could. I mean, if you use the analogy with simple smoking. I, mean, I, I know they're two different products, but, I mean, COPD is definitely a complication. My mom passed away from COPD, so I'm particularly sensitive to that. For tobacco, I mean, and the according to the UCLA studies, um, if for, for patients who smoke, look, I'm not going to go on nationally or whatever and tell people they should smoke. I mean, that's not what I do for my practice. Right, 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 right. So what what I do, the patients that I see are are not really here for any recreational use. They're here because they were referred by their doctors. They have a complex medical issue or a combination of issues that hasn't been figured out yet. Um, I practiced internal medicine for almost 30 years, and I'm still practicing internal medicine. This is practicing internal medicine and finding um, ways of using cannabis and minimizing pharmaceuticals. So the patients want to know what the dose is, how often to take it, and then after three to four days, they message me, they let me know how they're feeling, we make an adjustment, and there's an average of five to 10 adjustments before we get the patient you know, doing well. It's not, it's not that simple. And as we start getting, you know, more molecules like THCA and THCV and CBDV, and it's no, it's far from CBD and THC, you, you need some training in figuring out how to use these new molecules. I mean, there are two or three companies now that are using the 23andMe genetics to try to predict what cannabis you should use. I played around with that, but I just, it didn't make a lot of sense, but, um, you could certainly see how genetically we could absorb it differently. But I never found that at this point that the, the genetic tests are good at predicting which strain you should use and how much CBD or THC. Yeah, we that tried would, it. That would make sense. 
I wonder if you could comment on how it is to practice your medicine in California now relative to some of the other states. I know you don't have experience in other states, but like the state I live in, in, in Florida and many others, it's, it's legal, but it's only when it's dispensed by a physician who's supposedly trained in cannabis. And I'm not sure of the quality of the training or if they come close to the experience of someone like yourself who's been doing this for 11 years. And so how, did, how does that compare, would you say? Would you guess? Because I know you- I would say from Texas and from Florida, we get a patient every day. And <laughs> say, because they, they hear doctors here don't know what they're doing? They, look, there's very few doctors in California that have any idea of dosing anything. And the, the, the real question is, why did this happen? Why are, other than the fears, um, medical board issues, there's one other big issue that most people now are not aware of. Doctors that were doing cannabis in 2007, 2008 were very aware of this law. And this was a ninth district federal court um, law that said a physician residing in the state of, for example, California, may recommend cannabis, but may not give any dosing or detailed information. And it was considered, if you did that, it was aiding and abetting. When I heard that, my feeling was, that's the silliest thing I ever heard. I could picture the courtroom where the jury is saying, wait, this doctor didn't give any information to his patients. No, he gave way too much information and helped them adjust the dose and was there for calls and changed the dose. Sometimes he would change the dose a number of times until the patient felt well. It's like, well, that, pet, that doctor needs to go to prison. Yeah. I mean, so I never felt there was any chance that I was going to be taken on aiding and abetting to the Los Angeles federal court because I'm giving dosing information. It seemed ridiculous. Um, it That's because it was. <laughs> it was totally ridiculous. But it's actually that, medical malpractice if you followed it. Exactly. Look, that was one, one of my points. I wrote a letter to the FDA and the DEA about this. That this was malpractice and I, I couldn't follow it. I never heard back. I don't think they really, I don't think they care about this. And the doctors, I can tell you, were, and I still get some negative feedback from doctors saying, because I went too far, you know, I figured out too much dosing. And I don't know, how can you figure out too much? How can you understand? I, I don't know nearly what I need to know. And I know for sure the only way I'm going to figure this out is giving more medicine to more patients and improving the quality of the medicine, thereby improving the quality of the patient's lives. I, mean, I can see, after doing this for 13 years, I can see why pharma is terrified. Um, the number of illnesses that we're now impacting is substantial. And for example, one that's come up since we last spoke was myasthenia gravis. Mm -hmm. which is a neuromuscular disorder with a lot of weakness, turns out that THCA and CBD in combination pretty much reverse the majority of the illness. We now have 80 patients with myasthenia gravis who I'm following. Um, to think that a neuromuscular disorder of the acetylcholine could be affected by CBD and THCA, and the raw or just raw cannabis is THCA. I have some patients that are in illegal states and they just can't get hold of it. We have them that they can always get some raw bud and they just eat a little bud a few times a day and it gets them about 60% better. If they get access to CBD and sometimes THC and THCA, most of them get off their prednisone. I mean, as you well know, it's a horrible, horrible drug to be on long term. Um, 
So virtually all the patients get off their steroids and mostly get off their mestinon, IVIGs. Um, I've gotten some nasty notes from the Myasthenia Gravis Foundation. They're talking about, you know, living through this five years ago or four years ago with the first few myasthenics, I got some, I got one note from the ex-president of the Myasthenia Gravis Foundation and said, he doesn't know about all the immune drugs that are available for myasthenia. And I wrote back, assuming he is me, I actually, I think, am aware of them. And I didn't wear a sandwich sign and go out to Wilshire Boulevard recruiting these people. They're on pharmaceuticals, they're doing terribly, and they're feeling poorly, and they're very weak, they can't see, and they came here, and they're doing better now. And I'm okay with that. Um, I, eventually, myasthenia and cannabis, it's, it's gonna, it will blow up because it's, yeah. that's, it's not a super common illness, but it's an example of how a complex neuromuscular um, disease that we actually can start figuring out how it's working and how the acetylcholinesterase work and, inter and how it interrelates with THCA. It's very exciting stuff. So. Yeah, but, but it's not curative. I, it most like, my guess is it's mostly highly effective symptomatic relief with virtually no side effects if, if prescribed appropriately. Well, it depends how we, because I don't think we, I don't think doctors cure, you know, anything. However, there's, this is, you, you mentioned this in the beginning, uh, this is something I talked to all my patients about. This is a vegetable plant. This oil is vegetable oil. This is nutrition. Um, it's absolutely nothing more than nutrition. It's a perfect example on how nutrition is medicine, medicine is nutrition. Um, for example, one of the real questions that came up a number of years ago is why when you're treating most diseases that you treat with whole plant CBD, the dose over the first six months goes down and it will continue to go down for a very long time. And that is not what we're used to, in, certainly in Western medicine. So it's something that I thought about for a number of years and I have two explanations and I, I don't know whether they're true, but there are facts with each one. One, what if we have not an absolute, like a vitamin C deficiency and have scurvy, but what if this is not life-saving nutrition, but it's really, really important nutrition? Mm -hmm. and we know that that's the case. It's a plant, it's a vegetable, it's nutrition. People have been eating it and smoking it and cooking it for tens of thousands of years. Before the last ice age, they found fossilized pollen of CBD. So it's been around an incredibly long time. Um, so we likely have a cannabinoid requirement, even though the RDA certainly doesn't recognize that. And if, if that is true, and you, with your broad experience, what would you guess that requirement would be? Okay, I, I would, I probably, well, patients come in and ask me, they'll say, I feel fine, there's nothing wrong with me as far as I know, I just had my exam, and what can I do to help me stay healthier? In other words, how can I use cannabis as nutrition to get the most kick for the buck? Um, I, my answer is generally 10 or 15 milligrams of CBD a day, you know, taken once a day at nighttime. And there's a lot, I mean, there's really certainly animal studies. Um, if you give CBD up to a week before or a week after a coronary or a stroke, um, you actually improve the outcome by about 40%. So neuroprotection, neuro, 
CBD is a little bit more for neuroprotection. THCV, I, I think we're going to see some very exciting reversals. Now, is that a cure? Well, the people that we've been treating with neuropathy, um, they start out using the cream twice a day. Um, then after a week or two, they're using it once a day. Then after a month or two, they're using it once a, or twice a month. Um, and we've never had enough of it around. We could keep people. My, my thought is, and I hope this is the case because it would be so exciting, that they can stop taking it eventually. Um, when I presented this to the collective or the, the dispensary that's making it, they actually said, do you have to tell people that? <laughs> and I said, yes, you have to tell people that. And yes, your sales might be a little bit lower, but that's because people are getting better. That's a, a good problem. There's 20 million people with neuropathy. You won't run out. So. Yeah, so that's good to know. And that's actually precisely the dose I take. Uh, because of the farm bill, we've been able to provide a full-spectrum organic hemp seed oil that is CBD. And we have, I take a 10-milligram capsule every night, just like you recommended. Uh, but I'm wondering about the opioid uh, addiction issue, which is killing upwards of, I think, 30,000. 30,000 or so, yeah. Yeah, a, a year. And upwards of a, at least, I think, close to a quarter million have died already in the U.S. Uh, so it's a real serious issue, largely a result of, uh, I guess it would qualify as evil, pharmaceutical companies, and specifically the Sackler family, who's in a, a load of different lawsuits now for this, for the way they're marketing the product. But anyway, the problem exists. So the, the practical issue becomes, how do you help people with that? Obviously, they have severe pain. So you mentioned that the cannabis can do that. And, and I'm wondering if you have any experience with Kratom, which has also received quite a bit of attention, uh, has a questionable legal status in the United States. But uh, you can, it is legal to grow. And I actually have four trees, Kratom trees growing. I've tried Kratom, um, and I've actually recommended it for a few patients where cannabis wasn't acceptable. I mean, it's a plant, um, and it works as well as narcotics. It, it's not like we're, we're looking about replacing something that's working so well. Narcotics don't work that great. Um, and like Kratom, it doesn't also, it also, like CBD, does not have a psychoactive effect. I certainly felt, maybe it was a placebo effect, but... Um, <laughs> you felt something? I definitely felt something. Okay. I went and bought it again. So, it's, um, but I, I, yeah, I take actually 40 to 50 milligrams of CBD, whole plant CBD, but it's not just for prevention. It's um, my parents were Holocaust survivors. So my sister and I ended up with this horrible, horrible, horrible anxiety and early morning awakening syndrome where for decades I would wake up at one in the morning sweating and, CBD stopped it, I mean, in two days. And that was one of the things that convinced me that this is, this is too exciting not to do. Um, wow, so you, the 10 milligram did, dose didn't do that, but when we worked it up to 40 or 50, it did. Well, the, the, I have access to it, and I can grow it, I can make whatever I want, or I can get whatever I want, so it's, it's free and it's available. So I started probably around 10 milligrams, and. I decided, let's see if I can get rid of all of my anxiety. I mean, if I can get rid of half of it with 10 milligrams, if it were me, if 40 milligrams, I get rid of 100% of it and just like never be anxious. So I take 40 milligrams. And Do you think I, there's any other benefits aside from the resolution of your anxiety at a higher dose? Um, absolutely. Actually, I just wrote a blog on one of them. Um, five years ago, I had my 
first couple episodes of Gout, which I was also eating not so well at the time. But I, I, I can definitely test, test, give you testimony. Gout really hurts. And when I started this, I found out the CBD worked great for treating acute gout. So that was terrific. But what's even better is in the last five years, I've never had another episode. And I've got three or four patients that are taking CBD and stopped having episodes of gout. Well, let me give you some feedback on that. I'm, I'm glad it worked, but I'm pretty confident it was just symptomatic, uh, I would think, because from my understanding, the, the, even though it's uric acid crystal, the complicating issue that virtually no one's aware of, that their oxalates are involved. And not many physicians are aware of the danger of oxalates other, other than calcium oxalate stones and kidney stones in general. So there, a low oxalate diet is recommended in potassium citrate, calcium citrate, testing bicarb. But if you go on a low oxalate diet, and Sally Norton, N-O-R-T-O-N, has a lot of good YouTube videos on this. She's probably the leading expert in the US on how to wean off of oxalates because so many foods that we think are healthy, like spinach and almonds and dark chocolate, you know, typically considered superfoods, are loaded with oxalates. So it will definitely contribute to gout. There's no question about it. Well, the um Gout and CBD, I think for the acute attack, transdermal CBD has a big future. And it's, there's always multiple things that we can do to improve our outcomes. So well, it's CBD, always best to treat yeah. the foundational cause. You don't want to mask it. I mean, it's good to relieve pain without dangerous medications, but I mean, ideally you want to fix what's causing it. I mean, to me, pain is a gift. I know it's a difficult perspective to take, but how else is our body going to communicate with us I mean, it's not going to, you're not going to have this vision that tells you specifically. It's going to, it only can communicate through that component. And, and if, you're, if you're having pain, that's a, it's a gift that tells you something you're doing is just not right. Assuming it wasn't acute trauma. Obviously, you know, the trauma caused it. But, or surgery. But if it's not, if it's a lifestyle thing, or, you know, you've got gout, or you've got kidney stones, and you've got pain, then it's ideal to treat the foundational contributing cause. We're also seeing uric acid levels going down. So, um, with CBD. With CBD. That's um, blood pressure. Um, um, we sometimes have to be very careful about blood pressure because if they're on a med and they add CBD, we've seen some people become a little bit hypotensive. But getting people off um, the... The lipid-lowering drug, the statins, I have particular disdain for and concern about. And CBD, um, the vast majority of people will maintain their LDLs as they taper off their statins. And virtually, unless there's somebody or their doctor that insists upon being them on them, it's something, I, and maybe this is stretching too far for the show, but I... You probably are not a big statin fan yourself, I would imagine. No, no, but a stat, statins do seem to have some clinical benefit, but it's not, and I'm absolutely convinced about this, by lowering cholesterol. They may, there's probably a wide variety of other clinical actions they have, such mm -hmm. as activating the NRF2 pathway or interfering with the, cl the clotting issues and plasminogen, but it's not through lowering cholesterol. That's, that's a total... Uh, mis, uh, misdirection. So yeah, that, that whole cholesterol hypothesis is fatally flawed. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, but we do see drops in cholesterols. We see drops in blood pressure. We see, getting people off medications is um, 
something that's done all day long. As far as pain and narcotics and the, I sort of put them into two different categories. You have the, the, the patient that is the simpler one that let's say was having back surgery after surgery or pre-op, they're given a narcotic pill and they have some depression in addition to their pain. And, and the, they, first of all, anybody in pain has depression and if it's gotten that bad, they're certainly going to be depressed. And all of a sudden they feel great. And for those people who have the left frontal change, which is associated with addiction, when they get that first dose, it's beginning of the end. I mean, because they've not felt that good for a long time or ever, and certainly not while they're in that pain. So with cannabis, what, what I try to do is, first of all, when we're we, we talk with a number of rehab facilities, and I'd love to work with one, but um, I bowed out so far because all of them want to get their patients off benzos in the first 30 to 45 days. And I think that's irresponsible. I mean, it's, I don't know how you get people off benzos that fast. And so what, what is your, what, using uh, CBD or THC or combinations, what is your optimized protocol for removing benzodiazepine uh, uh, dependency because it's such a rampant problem? Yeah, well, CBD is a, a, a big help for tapering people off benzos, but it's still a six month to a one year process. I mean, we've done it successfully with a number of patients, but we're talking about, let's say with Klonopin, it comes the smallest is a half milligram, taking that and putting it in four ounces of water and covering it, keep it away from children in the refrigerator and just take a measured amount because otherwise, how do you get down from... So, so what, is, what is the graduated progression of decreasing the dose? So, you know, can you describe? Because I think a lot of people would be interested in that. And it, is the clonopin water soluble? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, the first thing we do is we put people on a, a dose of CBD two or three times a day for um, the CBD... Re reduces tremendously the the drive to consume alcohol, cocaine, and narcotics. Mm -hmm. um, but the and, and benzos. Well, not there isn't a study about withdrawal of benzos that I could find. The only those other three drugs. But um, since it's such a great anti-anxiety and calming medicine, um, and it raises serotonin dopamine, norepinephrine. I mean, the, the way that our internal cannabinoids, our endocannabinoid system works, if you have like a pre-neuron here and a post-synaptic neuron here, the, although the neurotransmitters are going this direction, our internal endocannabinoid system at that synapse is working the opposite direction. So we can see norepinephrine or dopamine or serotonin coming across the synapse and it, it knows that, oh, that's too much, or that's too little, and it'll adjust it on the fly. Um, that, to me, is I have a great slide of that that I wish I could show here. But the fact that it works retrograde through the synapse is, is brilliant. Well, well, send me a copy of slides we can easily integrate into the video. Uh, and what's the dosing for the uh, CBD in the, in the, the uh, withdrawal process from the benzos? It's because I assume it's more than 10 milligrams at night. Oh yeah, it's going to be ten, probably around ten milligrams three times a day. Okay, so it's um, relatively small. Still. Um, yeah, they don't need you know huge. Well, huge doses of CBD are really never needed. Um, okay. By the way, one of my concerns about the single molecule stuff 
is you sometimes need, like with epidiolex, four, five, six hundred milligrams. And I think we're going to end up with some more problems with the hepatic P450 system. Because with whole plant CBD yeah. procedures, you never need more than 100 milligrams. With CBD from epidiolex, you often need five, six, seven hundred milligrams. And that's plenty to start getting into some P450 and drug. That's why we only sell the whole plant, full spectrum CBD. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Which 10 milligrams of CBD, so it's got all the other terpenes and you know CBD molecules in there. Uh, so 10 milligrams three times a day, that's pretty intriguing. And then what is the progression of the decrease of the clonopin? I mean, if say you're at one milligram, what, what would be the progression over six months for a year? Is it like 0.05 milligrams every few days or? No, um, it's usually make an adjustment every three to four weeks. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, really, 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 really slow. And again, this has become so like for a ten percent reduction every uh, every month. Every month, okay. Yeah, I mean, I just tell people it's going to take a year. And if maybe we could have done it a little quicker in that one, it helps us prevent failing on a bunch of others. Um, What's your success and, rate on that? That'd be intrigued. Yeah. I'd say 40 percent, and I think it could be a lot higher potentially, but I think a lot of people, they get, maybe they're taking three or four milligrams of clonopin and they get down to one. Okay. I mean, that's an interesting question. That's a success. It's not a failure of getting them from four milligrams a day to one milligram. That's not very difficult with this. Mm -hmm. It's often that last half a milligram. And, and, and I, I, I'm very clear with my patients up front that defining success and failure doesn't have to be a hundred percent or zero percent. It's yeah, if you, point. yeah, if you're if you're from four milligrams down to one milligram, that's a huge success. It's not where we want. Um, and if you're if you're a lower dose of clonopin, can the does it? Would I would assume it would take longer, six months as opposed to a year. Like if we're at half a milligram, I if, if they've been doing it for a number of years, I I'd still probably do it over six months to a year. Okay. I don't really see the downside in doing it slowly. I see the downside in doing it in, in the rehab situation. And that's what my, my problem is. If, if they're coming in for narcotics, that's the stuff that's going to kill them. Um, that's going to kill them. The benzos are horrible. I hate benzos. But right now, at that moment, when they enter rehab, benzos are not their main issue. So I think we focus on the narcotics. We focus on using... Um, generally some baseline CBD a couple times a day, and then adding, depending upon the patient, depending upon, also, what if their issue, as an adult, it's rare that cannabis is the addiction, but um, there was a rehab place that opened with smokable cannabis around. I thought, that's ridiculous. I mean, you, you're then, you're taking a bunch of drug addicts, putting them in the same <laughs> room together, and then somebody walks in, even if somebody never smoked before, they'll smoke now. I mean, I, I couldn't believe when they did that. But a doctor needs to see these patients every day that is trained, I don't know, somewhat like I am. And we've got the baseline CBD to help with withdrawal issues. And then we're using THC, THCV. I mean, THCV in the rehab setting has the potential to be, uh, I think, combinations of THCV, CBD, and THC in the same dropper is going to be a huge winner in the rehab world. So I'm, we, wonder, I'm wondering how your practice has changed since the 
passage of the new California legislation and the federal legislation? Has it in radically increased? Are you doing consults with other physicians to train them with your 10, 11 years of experience to get up to speed? Or you know, what's, what's changed in your own individual? Google's better. Um, I mean, I, people certainly aren't coming in just for permission to, to go get weed anymore, but we all knew that was gonna be going away. Um, but people, a lot of the patients that come in say, now that it's legal, I feel comfortable. But also now that it's legal, their doctors feel comfortable, not so much in recommending it because they're not so much aware of dosing, but they'll say, yeah, go see Frankel. Um, and since I practice in this area for over 30 years before I started cannabis, the docs in the area know me and they figure, well, Frankel's crazy, but if he's doing it, he probably knows what he's doing. So I've gotten to meet, meet up with my old colleagues a lot and been given Kaiser, by the way, and I think Kaiser is going to be a huge player in the cannabis market. They flew me to Maui, put me up at the Wailea, and I gave a talk to the sur Kaiser surgeons there on using cannabis in replacement of narcotics. Um, Kaiser, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world that Kaiser will be one of the big players in that area because they have all the incentives wrapped into one to make it work. Yeah, I've been very impressed with that organization as a leader in addressing some of the serious shortcomings of medicine. They're really doing some incredible things, and that's another good example. And I've, I've read others of the, making good progress in trying to change the craziness that exists in our current system. I mean, Kaiser doctors will now send me patients. Um, that would have never happened five years ago, ever, ever. They couldn't even mention the word. It was like being in the White House and trying to mention climate change. Uh, but I don't want to bring it up. <laughs> there is no climate change. What climate change? It's, it's, it's removed from the dictionary or vocabulary. <laughs> so one other thing I wanted to share is that um, for cancer patients, and this is going to be for seizure patients, and it's going to be for eventually all patients, it's the tinctures, the oils are going to become way more complex. Um, if, if we had plants that were from two, three hundred years ago, they were way more medicinal because they didn't have, you know, THC at 20-25%. THC was one and a half percent. And everything else was around one and a half percent if you go back to the 1930s. Um, CBD has been around for a long, long time. THCV has been a big deal. And all these plants had like a percent or two of each of these major cannabinoids. So I would imagine that picking it raw or smoking or cooking some of these plants that were a couple hundred years old would be really, really medicinal. They just found in China um, a 2,700-year-old mummy who was, a, I believe, a princess. And she had breast cancer and she had a bag in her tomb of two pounds of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And we know the diagnosis. Apparently, it didn't work. I mean, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we talked about the use of uh, CBD and cannabis for addiction disorders and benzodiazepine and anxiety and stress. But, you know, really, there's a one out of three people in the United States. I mean, literally 1,600 people every day in the United States died, not diagnosed, but they died from cancer. So clearly, uh, cannabis has been used as an adjunctive therapy and recommended and, and I think validated in many trials for this. So what is your best strategy for someone with CBD and does it change based on the specific cancer they're addressing? Um, I, I hate to admit this, but um, we really don't 
No, I, I think some people believe that we know, but I don't believe that we know enough to say, for this cancer, I would always do this. For this cancer, I'd always do that. Um, we, we know that one-to-one -one of CBD and THC is effective for a lot of solid tumors. And there's, there are clinical trials out now with glioblastoma, astrocytomas. And for a number of years, we kind of, not kind of, we copied a patent that, um, I like reading patents and getting information that we can extract from it because a patent is an idea that you're going to do a clinical trial on and if the clinical trial is successful and proves that your patent is valid all of a sudden you have a lot more money so patents give you information that you can adjust and take and borrow and or if there's if there if a new medication is going to be a variant EHCA for example and it's going to be for disease X. Well, if they, ha they have some evidence, they're going to do a trial, why not try that on those patients now? I mean, we're just saying, you know what, I think we should use some THCA and CBD for that. And one of the times I did that, that turned out to be amazing for prostatitis um, because both CBD and THCA are antispasmodics. So for like an old, old guys, um, not us, but... Um, of course, but um, THCA. You know, you know what the definition of old is? 15 what? years older than you are. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I, I consider middle age anything younger than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's been another big area because a lot of people have urinary frequency, urgency, spasm, um, interstitial cystitis, uh, prostatism in men and people could actually just take a little raw cannabis and just have a mix it with a little yogurt whole food usually tell them Greek yogurt because it has some fat and they can just get plenty of THCA that way and it's cheap really cheap um, does it matter if you're taking the CBD at night to take it with fat or by 10 milligrams or is it not as big of an issue um, I'll tell you, there's a, there's a lot of, there's data out there that shows that there's better absorption with food. There's data out there that shows there's better absorption without food. Um, and then there's the whole sublingual. I tell people to take it an hour away from food. Um, I, I can't imagine food helps the absorption. Okay. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good subtle point. Many times uh, those are the, the, the clear and best information is in the details. So thanks for that feedback. So are there any other exciting updates you want to share with us? Um, well, with, with both the cancer and the seizure patients, one of the things that we're starting to do that's different and very exciting is making panels so that any cannabinoid that we found to be helpful for a seizure or terpene um, or in the place, in the situation with cancer, where like in Europe with chemotherapy, they'll use six, seven different chemotherapy agents at low dose and apparently have improved results, which I'm not surprised of. Uh, and we, about two and a half years ago, started putting in CBD, THC, THCA, CBDA, and next it'll be THCV and THCVA. And my feeling on cancer is any cannabinoid or terpene that's been shown to have anti-cancer properties, we add in. We're not, we are not, I know some people claim that they know exactly 
what to use for estrogen positive breast cancer and estrogen negative breast cancer. There's no data on that. I wish I, if I knew it, I would be happy to talk about it. I have not seen any data that makes me comfortable with that. I mean, the fact that I'm getting comfortable with the fact that breast cancer in general, I, I don't think there's any question there's a difference with cannabis, but also with chemo. I, you know, I'm not anti anything. I'm not pro anything inherently. If it, let's say there's a chemo drug or an immunotherapy drug or targeted therapy that has a 50 or 60% success rate, I would add that in. I mean, why wouldn't we want to add that in? So, um, and I'll, I'll go with what the patient wants most of the time. I do have, here's a, an example of one case where I, they reached my limit. Um, it was a 40-year-old guy that came in with testicular cancer, came in with his wife, two young kids, and he said he wants to treat testicular cancer, which is curable um, with standard therapy with cannabis and not use any other drugs. And I said, I won't do that. Um, and I, I think when there's standards of care that are excellent, like, I mean, that's one of the few, um, use cannabis with it to help with the chemotherapy, which is a, a huge help. And as soon as I said, I won't do it, the wife started crying and then hugged me and said, thank you, thank you. And he said, okay, since you said this, can we do both? And he's now, they now have a third kid and he froze some sperm and they're doing great. So I, I think we have to be responsible as physicians to know what our limits are. Like Clint Eastwood, a man needs to know his limitations. No, um, yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> and for the seizure patients, the same thing. Um, I, I think that, and these are gonna require some studies, but, um, CBD, we know, is effective. There's no, no question there because um, the, there's been plenty of other studies. But THCA is, you know, the raw form of THC, um, CBDV, THCV. So I see these, and what, this is actually not that novel of an idea. All I'm doing is saying, all right, the plant was way better 100 years ago before we started messing with it. Let's see if we can reproduce that plant in a bottle today. Um, that's kind of what my overall you know, goal is. And the, the main way that I've learned stuff over the years, um, I do read patents, certainly read studies, but um, we, we have to give medicine to patients and we see what happens. And that's what we've done for the last seven or eight years. And thank God it's so safe that we could play around pretty aggressively without hurting anybody since the worst thing that can happen is a little you know, excessive psychoactivity. Um, I, I see the cancer thing blowing up um, in a big way. I mean, in Israel at the Technion, they just put in, I think, a half a billion dollars to study cannabis and cancer. And that's, for Israel to put that in there now, is, that's, that's a lot. And there's clinical trials coming out, and virtually all of them are showing very positive results. And this, cannabis doesn't necessarily need to replace everything. It's one more tool for the doctors and the patients you know, toolbox to use. It's, um, by the way, the reason there have never been any deaths um, with cannabis is because in our brainstem that controls those boring things like our heart beating and our lungs breathing, um, those receptors are there. But there are virtually no cannabinoid receptors. So we can pour in all the cannabis you want into the body, it's not gonna alter the brainstem. But with Xanax or narcotics, it alters it, you know, very, very, very quickly. Yeah, um, it is somewhat 
counterintuitive because it, it is uh, in the opioid family with the cannabinoid receptors. I mean, I believe they're similar to that. And the opioids clearly can kill you by respiratory suppression. So cannabis doesn't though. No. But it, it also doesn't have any overdose toxic effects that would kill you metabolically. No, the only way you can die with cannabis is if a thousand pounds lands on your head. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, they, they, uh, it's, uh, the, the mu receptor, I mean, you're right. The, the mu receptor, which is part of our pain um, treatment, um, is also hit by CBD and to a lesser extent THC. But that's in the periphery. That's not a brain stem issue. Um, I think there, there was some talk a couple of years ago about a guy who died in Amsterdam from a cannabis overdose, but he ran in front of a train. Um, and I don't know what drugs he was on, but running in front of a train is not a drug overdose. That's just a, it's an accident. Well, an accident. that's an accident. Maybe a drug-induced accident, but it's still, it's still an accident. Uh, that's, that's a whole other topic of discussion is the way that the medical system classifies deaths. Because if they were classified appropriately, you would have the conventional medicine being the third leading cause of death. I think that's pretty well documented, but that's not the way they figure it out. They, they have a heart attack. It's not because the doctor mis, uh, pres, mis, misprescribed something, a drug, but uh, they, you know, it's classified as a heart attack. But anyway, it's another thing. So I think we're at probably at the end of our uh, interview and I want to thank you for all your hard work and how, if someone wanted to access your wealth of clinical information and consult with you, how would they do that? The simplest way is to go to my website, greenbridgemed.com. Green like the color green, bridge like the golden gate. Yeah, that's great. And what, what city are you in again? Santa Monica, California. Santa Monica. Actually, Santa Monica. That's great. It's so a nice lovely, place. lovely place to be, assuming there's no earthquakes. <laughs> Not today, yet. Not today. All right, well. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, it's great having you on again and sharing your wealth of information with us to help people. Uh, I was really intrigued with the benzodiazepine weaning protocol, so I'll probably be recommending that to a few people. So it's, it's pretty simple. I didn't realize it was such a prolonged weaning period, which is not intuitive, but uh, makes sense. Yeah, it's the only way that I found it to reasonably work. It's tough. It's yeah. way tougher than narcotics. All right. Well, thanks again. And thanks so uh, much. Well, we really appreciate it. Have a good evening. All right.